optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, my wonderful lads and lasses. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where my job is to deconstruct excellence, to tease out the practices, the habits, etc., of world-class performers that you can borrow, whether those people are investors, athletes, celebs like Arnold Schwarzenegger, anything in between and everything in between. And this episode is by popular demand. We have Kelly Starrett making a reappearance. And for those of you who don't know who he is, Kelly Starrett is co-founder of San Francisco CrossFit. He's been there 10 years, 130,000 hours of training CrossFit athletes. He's one of the first 50 affiliates in the world. Now there are more than 10,000. His clients include Olympic gold medalists, Tour de France cyclists, world record holders in Olympic lifting and powerlifting, professional ballet dancers, elite military, it goes on and on. And when I break myself, Kelly is the guy who helps me fix myself and uh, produces some pretty hilarious encounters because he's very fond of tearing my hips apart, among other things. But in this episode, you submitted questions, a lot of questions, and then voted them up or down. So there were 3,317 votes on different questions at last count. 
and he answers some really, really specific questions that are very tactical. So for instance, top three to five mobilizations that everyone should be doing, a 15-minute mobility wad that every company in America should enforce three times a week, applying 80-20 analysis to post-workout recovery, and much more than that. Uh, he busts my balls a bit, which is always good fun. That's... Uh, <laughs> Something that Kelly's also world-class at. Takes the piss in the beginning uh, for you, Brits, and uh, Commonwealth folks out there. In any case, I hope you enjoy it, and I would be making a grave mistake if I didn't mention one other thing. And that is, my birthday's coming up shortly. It is my 38th, and every year, instead of getting gifts, I try to rally all of you to do something very, very cool and groundbreaking. And in this case, I'm partnering with Kelly and his wife, Juliet, to create the first standing desk-only elementary school in the world. And this is intended to be a prototype, a proof of concept that could do a lot of good uh, around the world and basically serve as a model for redesigning schools around the country. Since kids 8 to 18 spend 85% of their time sitting down and uh, the effects of extended sitting have been compared to smoking, for instance, by people at the Mayo Clinic and we think that is a big problem. So if you go to 4hourworkweek.com forward slash standing S-T-A-N-D-I-N-G, all spelled out. So fourhourworkweek.com forward slash standing, you will see exactly what we're up to. It's very, very cool. I've put in 10 grand of my own money to put my uh, money where my mouth is. Kelly and Juliet have done the same. And a lot of you are rallying. It's uh, It could really be a groundbreaking, high leverage sort of Archimedes lever to do a lot in the educational system, but we need this prototype. And uh, it's about halfway there. So please help us finish it off. Fourhourworkweek.com forward slash standing. And now please enjoy the QA with the very funny and very talented and very handsome Kelly Starrett. Hey there. This is Kelly Starrett from Mobility Wad. I have to tell you, anytime Tim Ferriss calls me up or has a hairy idea, some kind of crack-up idea about, hey, you know, why don't you come on or let's talk or let's have some dinner, my red flags go up. I'm not going to lie. My, my antenna goes up because, you know, Tim is, is a little smarter than me. He's, he's a little faster than me. He's more wily than I am. And he always ends up sort of getting me to, to expose myself. And what was great about when he said, hey, Kelly, will you come on and answer some questions? And I was like, absolutely my pleasure, but you're not going to be there, right? So I get a chance to sort of speak my piece without having to be worried about what is Tim thinking of me and, you know, Tim is so pretty and he's such a good dancer and I'm so jealous. What we get to do is say, you know, take the questions that you guys valued as important and just riff on them. So I'm going to do my best. I have a cup of coffee over here. I'm spun up, done my breathing exercise. I'm ready to bring it. So without further ado, here's the first question. 10 questions with Kelly Starrett. This is from Chris Livingston in Ontario, Canada. And Chris says, Kelly... How long did it take you to fix yourself once you started seriously self-mobilizing? Can you share any stories from your personal experience of becoming normal again? And I have to tell you, hell yes. I am, you know, I may be, uh, you know, a guy who's out there talking, but I'm a user. I mean, I fight for the users. You know, so much of my own experience has come out originally of solving the problems of the athletes and my friends right around me and my own experiences. Um, you know, people forget that I was a broken, broken athlete who hand went numb, went down the, the sports medicine rabbit hole, had, uh, you know, cortisone, you know, prednisone, 
uh, all the zones. I had MRIs. I, would, I saw acupuncturists. I saw a massage therapists. I went on decompression. And, you know, and I really couldn't get to the bottom of what had happened. What had happened was I was moving like crap and I wasn't taking care of myself at all. And I lit myself up to a place. My body was giving me warning for a long time. You know, my hand would get weak sometimes. It would pump out. My form would pump out. It could hold the paddle. That was my nervous system telling me, hey, you've got a problem. But I didn't, I just overlined, you know, overrode it. Um, so, you know, rehabbing that nervous tissue injury or realizing that, boy, you know, it's not about working harder. There has to be some other piece that really put me on the pathway of thinking critically about my body and in a very different way. My girlfriend at the time in college was a rolfer. And we were together the entire time she was in rolfing school and I'd been exposed to all the soft tissue work. And what was great was laying down on the table and having someone fix me. And she, we used to fight about it. And she'd be like, you have to you know, stretch or take care of yourself. And I was like, I'm pre-stretched and you don't, you're not the boss of me. And why don't you just fix me? And what a terrible, terrible paradigm to be. And of course, the relationship ended, ended terribly because it was my fault because I didn't, I didn't mobilize. You know, my C2 partner, would, he would cramp up in the boat and his feet could handle it. So he had to do these elaborate routine, which took him all of like seven minutes to get his feet and hips ready to be in the boat. And I didn't. And what was interesting is that he got feedback that his mechanics were off as in he couldn't sit in the boat and he got hurt and it hurt him. And I didn't. And I waited until I literally broke before I was like, Oh, that's why Shane is doing the things he's doing. So my, you know, red flags were, I remember being a young, um, Obviously, I had that problem. I also had this problem where my quads were always tight and I had knee pain all the time. I definitely had knee pain when I ran. And, of course, Brian McKenzie showed me that I was running like a moron, heel striking. So I fixed that. But one of the things that was happening was that in the early days when I was initiating this strength conditioning experience in 2001, 2002, I was Olympic lifting with Jim Schmitz. And um, I was following what Pavel said. And um, I found CrossFit early on. What was happening was I was doing what guys like Mark Ripito were advocating, even Greg Glassman and Nicole Carroll, which was to crank my pelvis over as hard as I could, which made my low back stable, right? It was functionally stable, but I was bone on bone in those positions. And what would happen is I was trying to squat heavy, these five by fives, and my back would ache for like 10 days afterwards. I literally couldn't squat heavy again for at least a week. And my back would be thrashed and my quads were really tight. And I was always trying to work on my quads. I was doing these crappy low grade, you know, static stretches and it didn't seem to really work. And, you know, of course my quads were stiff and, you know, I, I really hadn't addressed the stiffness. I'd do some like pinche foam rolling and that didn't really work. And it wasn't until I realized that I think I was overextending and, and I couldn't do what these coaches were saying. And the coaches were trying to get us into a non-flexed position, but they were, were not talking about a brace neutral position, which is a very different idea of, of sequencing and organizing the spine so that the abs and the nervous system do what they do. So I was in this overextended position and my quads would get tight. And that's one of the first times I realized that if I, you know, I had to prioritize the motor control and the bracing and sequencing of my nervous system, organization of my nervous system, if I was going to get ahead of some of the downstream muscular problems, right? The neuromuscular, the contractile feature problems. So, um, you know, once I started organizing my spine differently and doing what I was supposed to be doing in gymnastics and the things that we were talking about and all the positions, not just cranking over again as tight as I can, extending into the belt, um, my quads, my musculature, my quads released and I stopped having knee pain almost immediately. Um, you know, I looked like a professional kayaker. I used to boat 300 days a year. I surfed. 
you know, sometimes I boated twice a day and I basically had no interrotation in my shoulders, like none. And I remember seeing uh, or being a, f- a physical therapy aide in like 2000 um, and someone pointing out that I had no interrotation. I mean, like psh, my shoulders don't hurt. I'm strong enough and I'm a kayaker. So what's the big deal? And no one can really articulate why that was important. Just that, hey, you should have this. And, and you know, we never even went back to it. No one fixed it. It wasn't something we kind of dealt with in the clinic I was in. And it wasn't until I started, you know, teaching a lot and seeing the, the, the ramifications of missing in sh- shoulder rotation that I really started to address my own. And what's happening was that I would, when I would go from a hang position to an overhead position, I, my shoulder would, you know, translate forward. You could see it in my dips. You could see it in a lot of things. And my shoulders would c- cook out a little bit. And this, again, early CrossFit. And when I started really drilling down on it and then correlating what to normal range of motion was, it really cleaned up pretty quickly on the interrotation front. So that was a big deal. Um, you know, if you take a look at the photos of me in, uh, becoming a supple leopard, you can see that I, the old supple leopard edition, I'm pretty turtly. I have a, looks like a hinge in my mid thoracic where I was hanging on the meat basically. And that was a function of sitting and kayaking and being, you know, paddling all the time. And it, you can see it in my deadlift. I would literally like, you know, my head would be lower than my lumbar because, I had this hinge there. So I've spent a lot of time fixing that and that has really changed my ability to, you know, manage, manage a brace neutral position without sort of being stuck bent. What I noticed in the practice to get to your, your bottom line is that I, I had to start noodling on this stuff within the context of still training and, and within the context of, um, having a family and working a job and being busy physio and teaching. And I started doing this I made a commitment to like 15 minutes a day. I was like, I can solve these things if I just work on a problem 15 minutes a day. And, and I started working around with other people. The work I did around in physio school to graduate, I looked at, really looked at and investigated and researched barriers to adherence. And what I found was that there was like a 15-minute, 20-minute magic window where I, I know I could get some people to do some work for 10 or 15 minutes and I'd get really good adherence. And if I extended that at all to 20 or 30 minutes, it would, it would drop off. It would flag. And so – uh, with my own practice, with my own clinical practice, with around the gym, trying to work the, the, the mobilization into it, we found that literally 10 or 15 minutes was a magical number <clears throat> to make some significant change in yourself if you, you know, were primed to do it and you did it regularly. So, you know, I started obsessing about some problem and I would just obsess about it for a couple weeks and then the problem would go away. I, I think, um, you know, I am lucky because my, my tissues are pretty healthy. Um, I have pretty good indigenous range of motion anyway. I'm not the stiffest guy, but I can tell you I had real stiffness in my quads. My shoulders were manky. My mid-back was totally a junk show. And I really noticed that when I got consistent, I got ahead. And when I get behind on something, you know, I start to start to see that it gets stiff. And I'm usually not a guy who experiences pain, but I can tell you that the more I optimized my mechanics, the less stiff I got. So if I went out and heel striked, for example, it seemed to make my quads and calves very tight. But when I worked on running good running mechanics, I had no problem. When I deadlifted an overextended position, it turned out my low back would get really stiff and my glutes would, and my piriformis would light up all the time and I was always smashing up. When I stopped overextending on my deadlift, my piriformis stopped lighting up. And, and that really was a, a key aspect of this is for me figuring out um, – you know, that I had to put position mechanics first so that, I, and then I had to do less maintenance. And I think that is an unfair, 
unfair equation where if you put more time into the moving well, then your body has to compensate less and you get less stiffness patterns out of that. You know, I just paddled the Molokai Challenge, Jim Fodi's race from Molokai to Oahu. It's a 53-kilometer open ocean race. And I didn't have any mechanical problems. My left hip got a little stiff because, you know, I was sitting and paddling for my life and a very technical race and a very long race. But nothing hurt and nothing hurt because I move pretty well and I'm, I'm really grateful for that, that I've been cultivating that. So as, a, as an indicator, unfortunately, the worse you move, the stiffer you get and then, and then that stiffness begets more poor movement pattern, which makes you stiffer. So, you know, really, really keeping in mind that I had a physical therapy instructor who taught pediatrics and she was talking about dealing with spasticity in kids and, and tone. And she was like, Hey, look, muscles and tissues are like obedient dogs. She's like, look, you know, it comes down in some kids that we have to cast them into end range and a week later, take the cast off, move them around, exercise them, put the cast back on. She's like, but in, in two weeks, you can get a massive amount of tissue change in a kid who is so functionally short that they would just cast them at these end ranges. And, and I know that sounds barbaric, but the idea underneath that is, you know, it's about will. You know, and uh, and I think sometimes some of us need to spend more time on a certain problem, but it always comes around. And I think a good example at our gym is Roop Soda, uh, Doctor Roop. You know, he does this, these regularly these mobility clinics at our gym, and one of our staff and a great physio. But like that guy was the stiffest, stiffest guy on the planet, and the amount of change he's made consistently over a few years has been profound. The guy can basically do the splits now. I mean, he can do the splits now. I'm telling you, when I met him, he couldn't even squat down with his heels on the ground. So we know it takes time, but you, you know, if it's seven months to turn over all your fascia and 18 months to turn over your whole skeleton, then chances are you need to, to really drill down on that. And that means eliminating a lot of the things that are, are causing you problems like high heel shoes or sitting. So that's, that's the short end of the story, which isn't short at all. Um, Next question comes from Connor McClure from North Carolina. Generally speaking, what are the top three to five mobilizations that everyone should do every single day? Well, the problem with, frankly, with that is that if you end up creating a program, then you're going to create a lot of blind spots. And what we've done instead of saying, here are the basic five, is we said, here are the seven positions around your shoulders and hips that you should have cold. And that means you should be able to do it cold out of bed. You shouldn't have to warm up. You shouldn't have to work hard to reclaim your position. You should be able to go into the gym, grab a barbell and start moving and getting physiologically hot, right? You shouldn't have to work on establishing overhead position in your jerk because you should have overhead position in your jerk when you go to jerk. And I think the problem is we've confused, you know, the training with uh, hey, I have normal range of motion. And, and then I mean baseline range of motion. Like I can actually put my arms over my head. I, I see so many people who literally are missing overhead range of motion and then wonder why their shoulders hurt when they do pull-ups. Well, it's because you're missing overhead range of motion and you can that pull-up is forcing you to have a whole bunch of car accidents in your shoulders. So the problem with three or five mobilizations is that you end up prioritizing some areas and some tissues and completely deprioritizing other areas of your body. So the issue as an athlete and as a, in a complete movement practice, you have to be able to do everything physiologically that a human can do. It means you've got to be able to pistol. Even if you don't do pistols, you have to get into the pistol shape. And that means you probably have to talk to your feet and your calves and your hip, even if you're just a swimmer, right? You're, you're pushing off the wall or, or running or whatever. The point is, you know, I can say, 
unequivocally that probably everyone can benefit from something that looks like the couch stretch, right? It's low level. It's a static stretch, but at least it gets you into this extension pattern out of the, the other pattern of sitting of this kind of rounded flexion position. You could probably do that every day or spend as much time in a lunge every day as you could. Probably hammer your T-spine a little bit every day. Those of you who are on a computer or a phone, which is i.e. all of us, you know, you could probably send to do some gut smashing every day for down regulation before you went to bed. You could roll on that, uh, that ball. You know, around the shoulder, I would really hammer, uh, you know, overhead positioning is just so crucial. And then missing shoulder interrotation. I think you can get away with some missing, missing some of the press. It doesn't have to be perfect. I don't think you're, you're uh, you know, um, the, the front rack necessarily has to be perfect. They all have to be normal, you know, and, and, and I think you bring up to this point that if there was just three to five things, that might be a problemless thing that I kept for a week. Maybe I'm just going to do three or five things for three or five days in a row, right? A la Pavel, three to five, three to five for three to five. But the idea here is, you know, I've got to make a problem list in my brain around a position and then I've got to go actively looking. And that's a conversation that you need to have with yourself around being, you know, generally physically prepared. And so, you know, I don't want to waffle, but that three to five mobilizations a day won't cut it and it has never cut it, you know? So, you know, dynamic warmup is dynamic warmup. That can be the same, but your job is to freestyle around the other stuff. So sorry, Connor, but uh, you're gonna have to be smarter than that. Um, this is from Marcus Wong in White Rock, Canada. If you were to program a 12 minute MWOT that every company in America enforced three times a week for their employees, what would that program be? Well, once again, we're back to a problem. We're saying, well, if sitting or standing is the issue, then we could program around that problem. So what am I saying? Well, you know, if I have, I work with a lot of pilots in the Air Force, a lot of pilots in the Marines, and a lot of pilots in the, in the Army, and we see, um, and even the Coast Guard, okay, well, we work with them all, um, we see that all the pilots share similar positions and mechanics. They're in a really bad position with a really heavy helmet, and then the, the, the cockpit isn't set up for them. So, you know, what we do is we try to get them to prioritize their spine and sacrifice the shoulder whenever they can. Because once, you're, once you've herniated the disc in your neck, it's really hard to unring that bell. But you can reclaim your crappy shoulder position once it's on the cyclic, right? So, um, you know, sitting at a desk is really a big deal. And if we were going to prioritize anything around that, I would say getting into the you know, the activities of daily living shapes. So what happens is when people sit a long times, you kick out two of the three stabilization practices, the, the systems that stabilize your spine. You can no longer create torsion through the hip, through the foot, because you're sitting. You can't squeeze your butt or use your glutes to, to control your pelvis lumbar relationship. And so you're left with just your abs. And then so we, we say what the, the four horsemen get tight, the QL gets tight, the lumbar gets tight, uh, the rectus femoris gets tight, the psoas gets tight, iliac gets tight, and the rectus femoris gets tight. So basically your high quads and your low quads, and then in your back, which is like the hamstrings, your back, your quadris lumborum. And what ends up happening is we see a pattern develop around the sitting, and that should be no surprise. So we could program to some soft tissue that would ameliorate the very some of the very symptoms of those static positions. And that really brings up an interesting question that, boy, if I'm a swim coach and we, we've experienced it with, with uh, Sage Hopkins, who's the head coach at San Jose State, um, is you know, he knows what swimmers look like 
and there, there are a common group of symptoms around the, the swimmers that he can program to directly. And if you're a runner, you know, you could probably, you'll see that there are very specific running related problems. Do you have to have a good thoracic spine? Yes. Do you have to be organized? Yes. Does it matter what your shoulders do when you run? Absolutely. But I can say unequivocally that, you know, there are very specific running related issues that you could prioritize. So if we took that concept, um, away from, if we took that concept away from saying, Hey, you know, what are, what's a 12 minute thing? If we said, well, we see that people have a hard time shutting down. So we teach them to shut down, teach them to breathe, do some breathing exercises. Cause all of a sudden that would, that would Im- improve the mechanical efficiency of their breathing that we would see decreased stress breathing patterns. I mean, people would literally feel better that with, you know, when, when we got them out of a stress breathing and efficient breathing pattern, they'd be able to stabilize instead of s- stabilize or breathe, they'd stabilize and breathe. And then I would probably address honestly, T-spine, the four horsemen, and maybe some crappy internal shoulder rotation. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you've created a little recipe. And the thing that I think really has helped, um, we see around program design is, it helps to keep people interested with new things. So they find a new th- mobilization and they're like, holy crap, I suck at this. You know, one of the, the, one of the reasons people like Bikram yoga, I think, is that they get to do the same series of poses over and over again. And then they can, they, they know the steps and they're not really uncomfortable. And what I think is a really valuable lesson is to go expose yourself to the, the same thing in a slightly different way. And you know, that sounds a lot like conjugate programming a la Louis Simmons. Well, we like to do the same thing in, in programming mobilizations. If we make packages even, and we do this for the universities that we work with, we'll put a package together, and then that package might be a neck package or a shoulder interrotation package. And that's literally how we program a little bit. It usually takes about 10 or 15 minutes. And then we cycle through those. So people start to learn the dance steps, but the dance steps, the dances themselves are constantly changing. So that's the way to think about this. It keeps it novel and it keeps my mind looking at different things. And also I've got to address this, this systems approach to tissues. I've got to address for the joint capsule. I've got to make sure I'm going after the sliding surfaces, how well tissues are sliding over one another. And I've got to address for the, the, the contractile features of the muscle, the trigger points in there that are, they're gobbling that up. You know, hopefully someone has a movement practice, but if I hit those three things right away, I could knock out a lot of the problem, even if they kept moving like crap at home, at least, you know, we could start to program to those issues. So that, that was what I would say. You know, the real issue is, you know, we're going to adopt the positions we spend all our time in. So let's constantly vary those positions a little bit. Let's create a movement-rich environment. Um, you know, how would you apply the 80-20 analysis to post-workout recovery? Uh, this is from Che. Um, in, order, in other words, what selective 20% of recovery methods account for 80% of the majority of post-workout recovery? Well, you know, I am not a sports scientist, but I hang out with a lot of sports scientists. And what I can tell you is that the best practices around uh, post-workout recovery are simple. One, and these are the things that we, we lecture about to all our, all our soldiers and all our professional teams. One is drink something right when you're done. You know, if you're slightly dehydrated, you can't kick on any of the protein synthesis stuff that needs to happen. And so what we see is that people are blown out. And then, you know, you get into your next window. So, you know, you, you, start, you start getting on the next thing. If you, if you drank some water or absorbed some water, then you would set a stage for being able to recover a little bit. So, you know, slugging some water right afterwards with some sea salt makes a huge difference. 
and putting those electrolytes back in massive, massive difference. If you can eat something within 20 to 40 minutes, I hate to say that's so old school, but it really does work pretty well in terms of not, you know, not only recovering, because I think it probably matters what you have in your system before you train more than what happens after you train, but you're looking ahead at the next thing. So, you know, I think it matters, you know, if you can eat a little bit, you know, afterwards that, and if you're already well fueled, then probably just eating some food afterwards is great instead of some, um, instead of some manufactured thing. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems that we see is that people train really hard and they become immediately static. And what ends up happening is that, you know, if you think about your own practice, you train, 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 and then, and then you go to work or you train, 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 and then you come home and sit on the couch and go to dinner or have dinner. And what I can tell you is that you are not, you're really good at bringing the engine up, you know, get it idling and get it revving. And you're pretty, pretty good at that, but you're not good at cooling down or bringing the, the heart rate down or giving yourself a chance to, you know, shift out of exercise mode. What ends up happening is we see adaptation errors in the tissues. Tissues become poorly perfused. You get stiff, you get congested. Um, if you, you know, if you can keep moving a little bit, that would be difference. And we, we see that change. Even if you have a standing station, you can kind of constantly shifting and moving and putting your foot up and putting your foot down. But if you go sit down or jump on an airplane, you're going to really see the effect of your, of cankles. Throwing some, some compression socks on is a game changing experience. I really have found with all the athletes we work with, I mean, LeBron James, you know, jumps in a cold bath, which is about resetting his nervous system, not about, uh, not about cooling him down. Um, resets the nervous system, but he wears compression before he gets on the airplane. And, you know, with our athletes, our high level athletes, we throw Mark pro on them, right? We start, we start getting them to clear that, that ugliness. And then in, in multiple events, we'll have athletes go for a walk in the evening or ride a bike or just get themselves moving sort of non-exercise activity. I think the biggest error is we don't get a lot of non-exercise activity. And what's happening is that most of us are exercising and then we're sedentary. We've got to break that cycle. Um, you know, I, I don't think people are sleeping enough. And uh, someone tweeted the other day, they're like, look, if you just, you know, we should, if we just got enough vitamin D, a little sunlight and uh, some sleep, you know, a lot of the problems underlying our physiology would clean up because the system is pretty robust. So, um, you know, get some sunshine, get your eight hours of sleep, whatever it takes you know, fight for your sleep, especially if you're training hard. I, I think those are the big errors. So, um, you know, you can go back through that list, but you know, I think being hydrated, well hydrated with the right, you don't have to drink gallon of water. I think that's ridiculous, but I think you need to absorb the water you are drinking, thinking critically by putting a pinch of sea salt in there. Um, really clean up your sleep, cleaning up what happens to you after exercise. Can you walk around? Can you be in a, a constantly moving? Can you wear some compression? Um, get some, get some vitamin D. I think those are the, those are the biggies. Well, thanks Shay. I think that's a, a fantastic question. I think that, you know, we like to save all the soft tissue work as an addendum. We save all the soft tissue work for afterwards because that's a perfect time to tell your body to chill out. And the soft tissue work really kicks on your parasympathetic nervous system, gets you out of that sympathetic fight or flight, you know, squat heavy and back down into, hey, it's cool. The animal is under no stress. What we need to do is stress and then de-stress. So we like the soft tissue work for afterwards, even before we go to bed. Uh, this is from Mike D in Seattle. What is the key to permanently improving mobility? I do my mobility work daily, but if every day it feels like I'm just as tight as day one. So underlying that is, you know, you can fix the problem, but if there's a hole in the tire, it doesn't matter how much air you put back in the tire, 
we're going to see an issue. So if you're running like a duck and moving poorly, again, that's going to reinforce movement patterns underneath that are going to trigger stiffness or inefficiency. So if you look at your calf and the penation, the muscle striations of your calf, it's designed to work really you know, in line. And if your foot is collapsed and your calf is pulling obliquely, you're introducing a lot of strain and stiffness into the system that your body is going to uh, appropriately deal with and accommodate for by just creating stiffness in the calf. And so you're going to see people who run really efficiently, their calves get stiff, but not to the degree that the people who are moving less efficiently do. So you've got to go back to the movement mechanics. And that's why the name of our course is Movement and Mobility because what we found is that when we gave people the solutions to their crappy problems, we didn't ever fix up their movement in the first place. All we did was keep putting out fires. We've got to get beyond that, which means we've got to move towards, do I have full range of motion? Am I moving well? This doesn't mean I don't make errors from time to time and I don't challenge that. But, you know, if you, for example, if you squat or deadlift and you round or reverse, you know, you know that your back is cooked. You can mobilize your back and deal with that piriformis. But the best thing to do is not to be in there in the first place. So, you know, what we want to do is break that vicious cycle. The other issue we've got to look at is the environmental load. You know, as I'm sitting here and I say sitting in quotation marks, I've actually been squatting. I've been sitting in lotus. I've been sitting in middle splits. Right now I'm in a sort of a pistol position on my left foot. And what I've been doing is making sure that what's happening in my environment, my day-to-day, is not overcoming the background. And so, uh, you know, a piece of uh, example about this is that I saw someone in the hospital when I was a physio working at Kaiser. And she um, was very, very sick, had a uh, wound vac. This wasn't at Kaiser. It was another hospital, Mills Peninsula. And she had a wound vac and from a, a problem she'd had. And I was going up and doing physio with her for a half hour a day. That was what I was allotted as, as, a, as a physio. And I was, a, I was a young student there. And what was happening is that she kept getting worse and worse. And what was happening was that she was orthostatic, which means she had orthostatic hypotension, so her blood pressure would drop out any time she stood up or sat up. And then we couldn't walk. And then the little walking that we were doing wasn't a big enough stimulus to overcome the amount of time sitting and laying in the bed. And what ended up happening is I ended up spending my breaks and I ended up spending my lunches going back in, getting her up and squatting in the chair and just getting enough to overcome the rest of her time because that half hour wasn't sufficiently robust to overcome the orthostatic hypertension that was sitting in from her being so sedentary. And I think that is one of the things we've got to do is look at what's happening in the rest of our lives. Because if, you know, if it's not making change, it may be making change, but you're just changing faster than you can keep up with. So you have two choices. You can either mobilize for an hour or make a better decision around your life and really try to clean up your mechanics. I'm sorry. That's a tough question. Um, this is from David from New York. What is the best position to sleep, i.e. on one's back or one side? The, the way to answer this question, because when you start messing with people's bed and their sleep postures and, you know, I, I had a guy on the, on the internets once, you know, he came onto the message board and he was like, you know, my doctor, you know, my spinal surgeon says I have to sleep. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like you've already had three spinal surgeries and you're trying to lecture us about the best position of sleeping. So The key here is that if we look at what a good position is for your spine, right, an organized, you know, kind of braced position in standing, like sort of that active spinal shape, right, not forward, head or not, not rounded, 
not overextended, rib cage down. If I took away all the all the structures that were active to make that in place, then the thing would just have to stay in stasis or be organized in that position. And what ends up happening is we find is that when people go to sleep, they turn off, right? They're, they're, they can't brace anymore. They can't organize anymore. They don't have the structure support. And they default to the same people they are when they swim. They default to the same broken, overextended people we see on the trampoline bouncing. And what, ends up, what we can start to say is I should be in a sleeping position that respects my spinal mechanics. And so, you know, if you're jamming your hands underneath your neck, you need another pillow because you're using your hands as a pillow. That's a good indicator. So how much pillow do I need? You need enough pillow to support your neck so that your head is in the same position. If you have a huge back, you're probably going to need thicker pillows. If you have a little tiny back, you probably need thinner pillows underneath your neck. You just need a neck roll or some pillow to support and to meet the anatomy to keep your spine aligned. So suddenly you can make any, you know, intelligent decision about sleeping. Sleeping on your side is fantastic. Comma, if you drop that leg into that sleeping soldier and you're three-quarter turned and closing down the facets on your little back, you're going to wake up stiff. So, you know, the idea here is, well, can I maintain or does my mattress facilitate a neutral position where I don't have to constantly burn out of a shape and move because my body's aching? So the real issue is I have no problem sleeping on your back. You know, what we see a lot is that people are sleeping on surfaces that are too hard for their structures, can't lay on their back, so they have to flip one leg up. And if you always are flipping your right leg up when you sleep on your back underneath your left knee, guess what that's going to do to your hip? If you spend six hours a night in that position, you're going to start to see that you get a weird capsular pattern that shows up. You know, the real problem I have is sleeping on your stomach. And I know out there you're like, I sleep on my stomach. It's the only way I can go to sleep. Well, these are all trained positions anyway. The only problem with sleeping on your stomach is how are you going to breathe? What you're going to see is that you're going to turn your head to the side. And that means you're spending six to nine hours a night with your head cranked to the side, closing those facets down, which is the position we test your neck in and your nervous system in when your, your body's pissed off, your neck is pissed off, we're clearing the neck by putting you into the sleep on your stomach position. So as long as you have a hole in your mattress and you can maintain neutral and breathe through the hole, I am totally down with you sleeping on your stomach. I have no problem with that at all, right? Just like imagine you get a massage, you lay on your stomach. You've got to look through the hole. Otherwise, your head's cranked to the side. That's the problem. So what we should be thinking is it's, we can be more position agnostic and we can be more spine-centric. So am I sleeping in a position that facilitates a neutral position? And when I wake up in the morning, I should feel stinking great. What I've found is that as we moved into a more formal strength and conditioning cycle, as athletes are sitting more and more as being modern humans and walking less – I'm seeing that people are becoming, and I feel like they're becoming more extension sensitive. We're seeing, you know, Esther Gokley, um just put up that piece on NPR. She's talked about these, these primitive postures versus, you know, what we've seen is that people have ended up with these exaggerated spinal curves, more forward and head and neck, more lumbar lordosis. And what ends up happening is that we see that people are sleeping on hard surfaces. And the reason we mentioned, we, we, we advocated as, a, as, a, as an industry for, much harder beds. So people were herniated and by sleeping on a, an extension that, that ameliorated their herniation. But what I see is that a lot of people are not sleeping well because they're extension sensitive and their mattresses are so hard and they're extension all night long. And when we put them into a little bit of flexion, they sleep a little bit better. So, um, you know, I think the, the bottom line is you should wake up feeling great and you shouldn't have to be stiff on that first stretch. 
you know, I've, I talk to a lot of people, it, it takes them a hot shower and 20 minutes before they start to feel like they can lift heavy. I think that's sort of an issue for us. Um, I think what we should be doing is we should be able to validate our sleeping position based on how I feel. And I should be able to maintain the integrity of my spine. So that's all I have to say about that. Um, that's a big one. Um, this is from Connor McClure of North Carolina. Uh, he says, what supplements do you take on a daily basis and why? So for a long time, I was a big time advocate of, of eat food, food's enough, food, 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 you know, and, um, what I found was when I started getting really regular blood tests was that I had some deficiencies and when I had some genetic testing support that blood testing, I found out I wasn't getting some baseline things. So, um, I always feel better in the summer. I always feel better sunburnt. Well, it turns out I sort of have chronically low vitamin D and I, I always take vitamin D. Otherwise I nuke myself in the sun. Um, it turns out that I don't process omega-3s very well and I had sort of doubled my omega-3 dose to be able to see the needle move on the omega-3s versus the omega-6 omega ratio. And so even though my ratios were within the normal limits of good ratio to 3-6 because I wasn't eating a lot of crappy omega-6s, um, in order to bump up the, the fish oil, I had to up my fish oil a bunch. Um, I a little bit B12 low. I started taking some B12. Every once in a while I get a B12 shot. That seems to really upregulate the system a little bit. Um, let's see, around sort of other supplements, you know, um, I think that a little cocktail for me of ZMA and 5-HTP, you know, I don't have a neurotransmitter problem, but that 5-HTP and ZMA before I go to sleep really does make me sleep a whole lot better. Um, I take a great kick-ass multivitamin every day. You know, um, I don't care where you get yours, a food-based kick-ass multivitamin. You know, um, I work with a company called Nutriforce. They, uh, they make a really great multivitamin packet that I'm a big fan of. Um, you know, and so uh, I would say on the surface, it looks like, you know, I, I don't take massive amounts of supplements, but those are certainly supplements beyond food. And, um, you know, things come and go. Should I take some more Q10, CoQ10? When I see it, I take it. You know, I think that's, that's where I go. But the real issue is, you know, supplementing a whole bunch of things just for the sake of it was what didn't really respond with me. And, but when I got the blood tests and I found there were issues going on and, and there were some specific micronutrients I could take, um, that would change some of that, then I, I got on it and I seem to have much better blood testing as a result of it. Um, with my wife, Juliet, you know, she, she has a, a faulty MTFR gene, so she doesn't like process the folate, is the way I understand it. And um, what we noticed was that, uh, you know, that when she she was always a little bit anemic because her B vitamins were super low, like critically low. And when she got on the folate regularly, everything seemed to upregulate a little bit. And I think we're in a, a brave new world of actionable science and being able to handle some of those things. And that's I think really the role of supplementation: very specific, very personalized supplementation and companies like wellness effects, you know, Tim and our physician, Justin major, who's been on the show before is really, really excellent. At this, for example, and, uh, you know, he can steer us in the direction of saying, Hey, here are very targeted things for your physiology. So I think that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm, I try to be obsessed about, uh, drinking enough water with salt. And I, I'm not saying that cause I'm not a guy to overhydrate. If anything, I underhydrate, I think it's a problem. Um, 
This is from Coach McKenna in New York. She says, what is the most important thing I can do with my child to limit future mobility issues? Well, what we like to think around kids, our model is saying that hey, kids have pretty rocking indigenous mechanics. Just watch any toddler squat and you know exactly what I'm talking about. So at some point, we either – we like to say that the, the, the tubes or the conduit is there for the wiring – right? Squatting is not a skill. Squatting is the way we move ourselves up and down, right? That's the functional movement, primary, uh, primal movement pattern. The idea is that we need to then reinforce that pattern with skill and repetition. And so we need to sort of pull the, the wires through the conduit. Around um, child health, there's a couple things. Getting your kids into some kind of formal movement practice, MMA, karate, jiu-jitsu, dance, ballet, gymnastics, something like that, Regularly, kids yoga. We have a kick-ass kids yoga program down the street where you're exposing your kids to full range of motion and asking them to maintain those positions. I think that's a critical, critical way to think about that. We have to have, you know, we, we sort of give lip service to, you know, kids should exercise, rah. And if they are playing, if they're jumping, I mean, I pick up my daughter, Caroline, from daycare, and she parkours underneath three bars and jumps up onto the stairs and ends up in a big squat. A lot of the kids are playing in these indigenous positions anyway. We can formalize that play a little bit more or make sure we're touching those corners. And that that should do it. I mean, that really should do it. But what we see is that kids are, you know, in our, you've seen that recently, we started a nonprofit called standupkids.org. And uh, what we've done is we've converted four classrooms, uh, which is a hundred desks at our daughter's school to standing desks. And getting kids out of a rounded flex spine sedentary position that they're adopting what the research says between 12 and 14 hours a day is profound. So if you can limit the sitting, um, that is a gigantic game changer. And so our kids are standing. And when I say standing there, they have, they're leaning against the desk. They have a foot up on the, on this bar that swings under the desk. Their elbows are propped up on the desk. They're in these really, really great positions and staying there for about four to, you know, 14, 15 minutes before they move to the next task, they can sit on the ground, they can work on the ground. We've basically, by getting kids out of the chairs, you're creating a movement-rich environment, which once again, doesn't sort of violate the primary patterning system of the body, which is sort of being constant motion. Uh, getting your kids in flat shoes, gigantic, gigantic deal. Um, you know, don't systematically shorten your kids' heel cords and wonder why they, you know, they, they have crappy ankle range of motion one day. I mean, that's your fault. So get your kids' vans, Get your kids Chuck Taylors. Get your kids into the you know the flattest shoe you can find. Reebok is moving closer with their athletic shoes. They're at like four millimeters of differential, which is better. Some of their kids' lines are flat, and we've been killing them on it, but they still haven't gone totally flat yet. Um, but there are plenty of kick-ass kid shoes out there that are moving flat, and they're going flatter. So I'd say flat shoes or barefoot as much as you can. Um, and then when you're at home – Avoid postures that re- reflect the things you're trying to kill. So if you're all hanging out watching 60 Minutes, which is what we love to do on Sunday nights, we sit cross-legged on the couch or we sit on the floor leaning against the couch. But what we don't do is more sitting, all right? Um, oh, here's a good one. This is from V in London. What are your all-time favorite life-changing books? Ooh, explain how. Dude, uh, when I moved to Germany in the beginning of second grade, I was sort of an okay reader. I mean, I read a lot, you know, sort of. My mom was a, was a psych professor. Um, but when I got there, TV, I didn't have a TV. And um, 
to entertain myself, I started reading and I started reading voraciously. And that, I think, was the, probably the single greatest thing that ever happened to me about moving to Europe with my parents was I lost TV. And my friends all had Ataris and, you know, and VHS and I didn't. I just literally was like a Luddite again. And I read so much and I got so much into reading that my parents actually took me in one time to see if I needed glasses because I was getting eye strain from reading at night in the dark. All right. So I discovered reading and I discovered, you know, that I was good at seeing messages, (laughs) hidden messages. I was good at seeing patterns and concepts that affected my life. And I started reading, of course, you know, you, you fall down the rabbit hole of anything that smells like the hero's journey. I think uh, Island of the Blue Dolphin is a good example of the first hero's journey book I read. Uh, there's a book in like middle school I read called Wyvern that was like A. Atanasia blew my mind about, you know, this young kid coming of age, that, that sort of thing. And no wonder that when I read Dune, you know, which is the, really a classic hero story, The Sleeper Must Awaken, that really resonated with me. Um, as I got on my, I read a lot of nonfiction and, you know, I I think a lot of times we, we read sometimes in our own niche really heavily and we don't go out. And so we end up siloing some of the information that we're seeing instead of seeing that people have already solved these problems somewhere else. Like the power of habit is an extraordinary book. Um, the sports gene, an extraordinary book, the talent code, an amazing book. Um, you know, some of the sci-fi read, you know, has really been informative. I'd say one of the, you know, one of my favorite concepts of this, and I, I talked about this once, was the Diamond Age, right? Um, Neil Stevenson, and uh, you know, in there, you know, the, there's this technology, this book that grows with these this, this guy's granddaughters, and the idea is that the book teaches the girls allegory, so that they simultaneously have to be perfect products of the system, and they have to work to subvert and burn the system down while they're creating a new system. So, you know, it's those kinds of things. I'm like, Hey, you know, that matters to me, you know? Um, so, um, you know, I read widely and variedly, uh, and in, in a lot of different disciplines because it's, it's amazing to see, uh, what happens and how you're influenced by that. You know, I was reading, uh, you know, a Wired Magazine article talking about a few years ago talking about the breaking the speed record on in sailboating because they get this wild cavitation, you know, that happens at, at speed, you know, and that was sort of like, I was like, well, we see the same thing happen with adults when we go too fast, you know, and so, you know, I think it's important to read widely and verily, especially around the problems that are like collateral problems because you can, you can see and solve the problems you're doing because someone's already solved them in another genre or another, another idea. All right. Um, this is from cinema where the top three things I can do to maintain a functional mobility well into my eighties and beyond. Ooh, easy one, have a physical practice. That means a breathing practice. You know, a bunch of people are discovering Wim Hof. Uh, Brian McKenzie brought me to that, uh, you know, really exaggerating, breathing and down regulation practices. Boy, the yogis have only been talking about that for a billion years. My friend Jill Miller all over me about mobilizing my diaphragm and the soft tissues in my gut. Um, you know, I'd say uh, uh, some kind of breathing practice that's part of my physical practice. Uh, you can't eat like an asshole. You just can't. You, you know, uh, our good friend John Wellborn noticed that when he ate clean, <laughs> he felt like he didn't have to exercise as much. And I was like, well, that's probably true. Um, you got to sleep, 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 and then 
sleep some more. I, I think you know you don't realize the impact it plays. People like to point out the outliers. Well, so and so, Bill Clinton only slept four hours a night, and I'm always like, yeah, Bill Clinton died of a heart attack. And so it's crucial that you just put the base things in uh, in place. There is a you know um, British Cycling Union. I forget who the coach was. We had this this concept called aggregation of marginal gains, and what their idea was that they would you know take care of the tires and take care of this and, and all these little micro percents would aggregate into a 2% gain or a 3% gain. Well, the guy who used to be the director of performance for Slipstream Garmin, uh, is, his name is Alan Lim. He's a buddy of ours out of Boulder and he's just a badass physiologist and has, you know, worked with the Finneys forever and ever. And, um, you know, he actually doesn't like that idea. And I, I don't like it either. He's like, he thinks that there are just roadblocks to people's performance. And our idea is just to undam that. So your roadblock may be your sedentariness from your job or your roadblock may be you, you're stressed out and don't know how to deal with that or your you know, roadblock or, or dam or, or your bottleneck is your nutrition or your bottleneck is you know, your breathing mechanics. Your bo- so by the time you just get to the bottom of your big you know, whatever your bottlenecks are, I think you find that, you know, we're all engaged in practices that are above a hundred percent necessary. Like, you know, how much do you need to deadlift? I mean, you know, like strength is never a weakness. Well, that's true. But if you can deadlift 500 pounds, you're probably strong enough to do almost everything except win a deadlifting competition or a powerlifting competition. I mean, that's a really big deadlift. So, you know, I think the idea is, you know, what we need to be doing is working towards, economy and refinement of everything we're doing instead of just making the engine bigger and bigger and bigger, which is what we're doing. Um, let's see. Oh, next set of questions. Uh, when you can't go barefoot, this is from Mike Vincent in Memphis. If you can't go barefoot, uh, are minimalist shoes a good option? If so, what do you prefer? So, you know, I think barefoot is, is king Although it's creepy to be that barefoot guy all the time, sometimes I go pick up my daughters at school and I'm barefoot, and I'm like, I am that guy right now. And uh, you know, the teachers know me, and everyone knows me, and they're like, Hey, you're barefoot on campus. I'm like, Yeah, I just you know, came over from the house. So, um, you know, I, I think the bottom line is, you know, the reason uh, anti fatigue mats work when we're standing on them is that uh, we see that in the anti fatigue mat world. Um, you know, what's happening is when you stand there, you're making constant movements and you're pumping out, uh, you're bringing garbage out and groceries in because you're, you're, you're getting constant little small perturbations in your balance. Okay. That, that makes sense. If I'm standing static all the time, a cushy shoe is amazing, but make it a flat cushy shoe, right? Because I, I'm a cashier and I just need to be balancing and wobbling. So the Nike air flat shoe, two inches, <laughs> go for it. But I think you should be, you know, in a constant state of movement. So whatever shoe you're in, it should be just enough shoe to protect you from the environment. You should still feel what's going on with your feet. So you don't bruise your toes, but you can you know, bruise your, the ball of your foot, but you still can, you know, cruise around. And if you're running a long distance or on, you know, a heavy duty, you know, trail, you probably need some little, you know, you need some more protection, you know, and, and I think the idea is that there's not one perfect shoe. If I'm cruising around, be as flat as you can, be as, as thin as you can. I, I'm uh, around my house. I rip out the insoles of all my shoes because I don't need it for padding. I maybe keep them in my running shoes, right? But I don't keep that little liner in because I, I don't need it. So 
as long as it's flat, as long as your feet are moving in the shoe a ton, and there's a lot of flexibility in the shoe, I think you're golden until you can get barefoot again. And uh, our model is, hey, be barefoot as much as you can. And then if you need to you know, ramp up and give yourself a little extra cushion or an extra heel to compensate for patterns or bad mechanics, then that probably makes more sense. Um, let's see. We're, we're, we're at 50 minutes now. I'll take one more. Um, how did you approach educating your kids about correct movement practices? How old were they when you started and what difficulties did you encounter and overcome? This is from Chris from Hong Kong. Well, you know, at some point as parents, we, you teach your kids how to sleep and how to eat. Why don't you teach your kids to walk with their feet straight? And, you know, you risk nagging your kids, but you just have to make it about this is what we do. And showing your kids how to squat, you know, is, is what you do. So, you know, if we watch TV, you know, a long time ago, I used to be like, all right, we're watching the squat or you have to couch stretch or, you know, and, and I think what ends up happening is that, you know, certainly your kids are going to mimic your behaviors, but we teach positions that scale up infinitely so that positions that can go from, you know, a kid squatting with feet straight to cutting and jumping and landing to, you know, to lifting heavier weights. And we don't, you know, we don't kind of keep going around the problem. We keep, we keep coming back to basics. And those positions also inoculate our kids from, from danger. So if you, jump down the chance from a, a high step and your feet are straight or your feet are together when you land, the chances of you blowing a knee out are very low because you've blocked that position into a position where you can handle the mechanics. Uh, everything works right and your tissues function well. So, um, you know, the real issue is that if you move like crap, you know, we see a lot, someone posted this great uh, picture on CrossFit.com of a, a guy carrying a bag and this kid carrying a bag. They're doing like a sandbag carry. And they're both walking the same. And the dad has got his foot turned out a ton and the kid has got his foot turned out a ton. I think we end up mimicking unconsciously a lot of our movement patterns and practices because that's what we see around us. And so, you know, cultivating that makes a difference. And just saying, hey, this is, this is how we move. And what we're honestly seeing is that, you know, our kids need to get some kind of formal movement training. CrossFit Kids does a great job. Again, gymnastics does a great job. Uh, you know, any formal movement practice is really teaching the mechanics because that's that's how we get safety and performance out of it. So getting kids into some kind of formal thing like that really does well. But you can take your formal thing and teach kids pull-ups and, and plank and doing all that stuff. It's it's great. The problem is thinking it's A, going to get done somewhere else. I think you've got to take a little bit of responsibility for that. And also show your kids what doing daily mobility looks like. You know, kids respond so fast. If you teach your kids a couple things, how to smash out their calves on the roller, how to, you know, couch, they're done. They're, they're sorted out. Um, you know, it's, it's a little tricky sometimes because it's your kids. And I think it's a fine line of, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And you can definitely be, you know, a movement Nazi, but your, your kids get it. They totally get it. And, uh, and if they can see it, if my daughter can tell you, if you're overextended or standing with your man, man belly hanging out, then, uh, then I know you can do it too. So, um, I think that's all we got. Uh, yeah, oh, there's so many good questions here. Well, so maybe Tim will have me back on. Um, the bottom line is, thank you guys very much. Um, you know, uh, there's so much to talk about in the world of sports and performance and self-actualization and taking the lessons we're learning at the highest level of sports and, and performance and spinning it backwards. You know, we say that, 
You know, it's got to be observable, measurable, repeatable phenomena. You know, we have to see change within the visit and see lasting change between visits. So we see intercession change and intracession change. So I see change within the visit, intracession, and between episodes, intercession. So that guides a lot of our thinking. And then also, you know, it's got to be inter and intra-rater reliable. So it's not just me. You know, I think people forget that we can apply real scientific rigor on top of our daily practice around a clinician practice, which is you. That's the N of one. So if, you know, you find something that works, is it observable, measurable, repeatable? Does it work every time? Does it work when your friends do it? Does it work at scale at 40 PIF people? What happens when you apply it to the 10,000 people? What happens? So I think that's, that's where we are right now is really demystifying one-on-one, you know, personal experience and really, really blowing it up into, uh, into practices and best practices that sustain us as we literally are, you know, punching into the, the brave new uh, horizon of, uh, of human self-actualization. And speaking of which, that is, uh, that is the heart and soul of this show. And I think guys like Tim Ferriss have, uh, have opened the door. I mean, my wife is able to quit her the little, little personal anecdote. Juliet read for our work week and literally left her, was able to leave her job as an attorney and become CEO and, you know, and that's one of the reasons that uh, Tim, you know, I have to do these things for Tim because he holds that over me because I got my wife out of the corporate law environment. Anyway, Tim Ferriss, thanks very much. You guys, thanks very much. We're in San Francisco. Come visit us. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Cheers. Hey, guys. Tim Ferriss again. Hope you enjoyed that. Kelly is always good fun. And I would like to invite you and implore you to help us build the first ever standing desk only elementary school in the world. Please join forces with me and Kelly. I'm doing this for my birthday in part. I've put up 10K of my own money to get things started. We are very close. So please check it out. Fourhourworkweek.com forward slash standing, all spelled out F O U R H O U R, workweek.com forward slash standing. Please take a look. Would appreciate your help. Until next time, thanks for listening. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader.